Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. We'll get started. Anybody here for the first time tonight in person? Welcome. Anybody joining us for the first time at home on Zoom? Welcome to you as well. I'd like to begin class by uh, asking you to talk to each other before we meditate and I do some talk um, with the intention of helping you build community. I believe that uh, one of the core things about attending meditation groups is about meeting other meditators and, and building community. It's one of the core tenets of Buddhism. We take refuge in the Sangha. Sangha is uh, people who are trying to be wise, trying to develop wisdom and compassion. And it's a good place to, to do that. And meditation groups are notoriously difficult place to meet people because you meditate in silence and ignore each other. And also a lot of Buddhist communities, people come in maybe a little bit intimidated and um, act like they're kind or act like they're, uh, you know, really spiritual and then um, kind of put on the mask, the spirit, I'm going to the meditation, put on my spiritual mask. Uh, it doesn't happen, I don't think, in our community as much as some others, but I just feel like it's really important to talk to each other and get to know each other. So I'm going to talk about um, perseverance and effort and the long-term slow transformation that Buddhism offers, the training, um, uh, the, the path to end suffering and how it's, it's such a gradual long-term process, something that's uh, really a lifetime's endeavor. It's not a quick fix. It's not like you can learn meditation in you know, 10 days and, you know, do 10 minute meditations and get that much benefit that it's really Buddhism is asking for quite a, a deep commitment if you want the results, you know, the results of happiness, of freedom, of uh, alleviating suffering takes, it takes a lot of work and um, perseverance. So maybe in your small groups, when you're talking to each other tonight and at home, I do these breakout rooms and you get to talk to each other on the Zoom breakout rooms or here in person, just turn towards some people. Talk about perseverance, maybe talk a little bit about how long you've been meditating, what are some of the benefits, um, and maybe something about your own aspiration for this, you know, to be a long-term uh, process for you. Um, I, I often quote the Dalai Lama when asked, you know, what's the fastest way to enlightenment? Uh, and he said, well, just check in on your progress once every decade or so, rather than it being some sort of quick fix of like, I'm going to do this fast and easy path to liberation of really looking at a lifetime of gradually developing more wisdom, gradually developing uh, more compassion for our pain and the pain of others gradually. And, and, you know, really in the term of decades, thinking about that and maybe discussing that, like, how much you don't like that answer. 
I was hoping that it wasn't going to take me 20, 30, 40 years to develop compassion. I was looking for it next week or today or last week. Um, and that kind of patience and um, commitment to uh, however long it takes, however long it takes. What else are we going to do with this life is the kind of uh, thing that I want to talk about tonight rather than um, giving up or going and looking for some other false promise of, you know, seven easy steps to abundance or, you know, some bullshit that's being sold down, down the street or on the internet or, you know, uh, but the, the real uh, slow process of developing wisdom that Buddhism offers, not, not a fast path. So it's, I don't know if you find a topic in that, but talk to each other and um, we'll just take about six or seven minutes for this. So each person just taking a minute or so to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about this gradual process. Perseverance. And open the breakout rooms for you at home. Have a period of sitting meditation, find a way to be that's relaxed, upright. Feeling sustainable, take a moment to settle into a posture that feels comfortable to begin with. As you're ready, allowing your eyes to be closed. Softening any unnecessary tension in the belly. In the shoulders, the jaw, all the places in your body where you might tighten. And as we establish mindfulness, the practice of paying attention to our present time experience. Bring a attitude and intention to be kind, to be patient. To be friendly towards both the pleasant and unpleasant experiences. To be friendly towards the mind the emotions, the sensations. And spend the first few minutes simply giving our full attention to the sensations of the breath. Breathing in, know that you're breathing in. Breathing out, know that you're breathing out. Let everything else recede to the background. The thinking mind continues, but we try to not pay attention to what the mind is thinking about as we choose to pay attention to the breath.
If you're new to this kind of practice, it can be useful to note in and out, help you stay present, track the experience with each breath. Putting the primary attention on the sensation, the impermanent beginning, middle, end of each breath. how it's constantly changing. When our attention gets drawn back into thinking as it will, remembering the friendly relationship to the thinking mind. As we disengage and return to the breath, do it in a friendly, patient, kind, non-judgmental way. Return over and over. training the mind like we would train a puppy with kindness, not with harsh intolerance.
Think about receiving the breath rather than watching it. Feeling the sensations rather than observing. Sometimes in mindfulness, it can, can get so identified with the thinking mind that it's as though we're looking down into the body from the brain. But the body itself feels, receives. Drop your awareness out of your head into your chest, your belly. Feel your posture, contact with the chair, sitting. Know that you're sitting. Breathing, know that you're breathing. that it's direct, it's intimate. You can choose to stay with a narrow focus on the breath or begin to expand to become more inclusive, present time, kind awareness towards your whole being, sensations and emotions, sounds, smell, taste. We begin to include the thoughts rather than ignoring the mind Knowing, these are thoughts arising and passing, plans and memories, hopes and fears.
that part of us that is aware, awareness itself receives the sensations of the breath, the emotions, the thoughts. Our first task is to know what's happening moment to moment, the breath coming and going, thoughts arising and passing. The second aspect of our practice is to identify the feeling tone of what's happening, pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. with both the sensations as well as thoughts and emotions. This way we can begin developing compassion for the unpleasant thoughts, emotions and sensations. We can see more clearly how we create suffering by clinging to pleasant, craving for pleasant. And we learn to let go.
Remember to soften, release the jaw, the shoulders, the belly. Finding that internal balance between the effort to stay present, to investigate what's happening, and also just to relax into your body, your heart, your mind. Not trying so hard to be present that we become uptight about it. Not being so relaxed about it that we indulge in thought the whole time. Finding your own balanced effort, not too tight, not too loose.
the last few minutes if you'd like to developing metta loving kindness starting with yourself Accepting yourself just as you are in this moment. As we say to ourselves, may I be at ease with my mind, my body, just as it is. May I learn to meet my pain with mercy and compassion. May I meet the pleasant experiences with non-attached appreciation. so that I may be at ease, content, whether life is pleasant or unpleasant. Ending this kindness to the people sitting next to you, people you talk to in the groups in the beginning. Just as I wish to be at ease, I wish for your ease, for your happiness, your well-being. May you learn to meet the pain in your life, the pain in this world with compassion and mercy. May you learn to meet the pleasant with non-attached appreciation. Through this process, may you come to know the end of suffering, freedom from suffering.
extending this loving kindness, this goodwill outward to the whole community, the whole Sangha. Gradually including all of your loved ones, friends, and family. And outward in all directions, including the difficult people in the world, in your life. until we include all living beings in existence, humans, animals, the seen and the unseen, the, those being born, those dying, the eight billion humans, the smallest life forms, the largest life forms, the sky, the sea, the planet itself, the heart of loving kindness. May all beings be at ease. May all beings learn to meet their difficulties with compassion. May all beings be free from suffering.
Ending by coming back to the breath, the body. As I remind you, the Buddha's teaching that we could search all realms of existence and never find any being more worthy of our love, our kindness, our compassion, our appreciation than ourselves. Come back to meeting yourself with compassion, appreciation, and love. As much as you can in this moment. If you are cold, there are some blankets up here between the two shelves. You grab a blanket and cuddle up. Before I get into um, the talk tonight, any questions about the meditation instructions or your, your meditation practice or how to work with your mind or the experiences that you're having in meditation? Is there a specific uh, aspect of that that you're interested in, or? Well, earlier you had mentioned like the thinking part in the background, and then I'm able to be in the present real time, as you say. And then, of course, that gets all messed up. But I'm curious how how you do it. Could you hear the question? Um, the questions about working with our minds in meditation. Um, so there's a couple of, uh, I don't know, maybe three weeks ago, I, I gave a talk about, uh, I, I kind of see it as like there's three different um, aspects of, of meditation and of working with our mind. And the, the first one is learning to ignore our minds, breaking our addiction to thinking and our identification with the mind. And uh, we'd use the breath and the body, the first foundation of mindfulness, as an opportunity to disengage from being so identified with what the mind is up to. And, and uh, learning, basically learning to ignore what the mind is doing. Now, there's a great misconception that people think like we're going to stop our minds and that good meditation is stopping the mind from thinking. Um, I, I think that's a misconception that can happen at really deep levels of concentration, but it's, it's not even that useful. 
from my opinion. You could you could do it if you try really hard. Long term, you could stop your mind. But what how how useful is that? <laughs> really, not that useful other than pleasant and a kind of break from reality. But the Buddha's instructions are first establish the attention in your body and with the breath ignore your thinking stage one ignorance <laughs> ignore and it's so pleasant to ignore your mind get a break from the judging the comparing the craving the chatter ignore it let it be in the background second is training the mind and so as you saw in the instructions i then open up and say um, you know, we're training the mind partially by bringing awareness to it and identifying, oh, this is an impermanent thought arising and passing, still trying not to be so identified. It's almost, I know in the meditation instruction around the breath, I said, um, don't think about watching or observing, but actually feeling. Now with the mind, in my meditation experience, it does feel a little bit more like a, observing the mind, watching the mind, then feels like a more appropriate instruction watching oh look at that plan playing itself out or that fantasy and there's a way that we can get to the place eventually in meditation where we're training uh, awareness to see these are just thoughts arising and passing and you can know the content and you can know whether they're pleasant or unpleasant or neutral you can see the clinging to that view that opinion that resentment that hope that the mind, you know, that worry, whatever the mind is up to, you can you know, get to the place where you're observing it and you're knowing, oh, look what my mind's doing or the mind is doing. So that feels like part of training the mind, training awareness to, to be with the mind. We're also training the mind when we're doing the loving kindness or the compassion or the forgiveness. We are actually um, suggesting thoughts rather than just letting the mind think. You're saying, may all beings be happy putting that thought in your mind as a training. The more you train the mind like that, the more the mind starts to, we could say, develop the neural pathways and think like that. Oh, kindness, forgiveness, compassion. I've trained my mind to do that. Left to its own devices, the mind doesn't have a ton of compassion for our own pain. Doesn't have a ton of generosity and love for all living beings. It has you know, a fear, self-centered tendency, the untrained mind. And then maybe the third piece is not even um, training, but just open awareness, just letting it be. Non-interfering, even when the mind is in resentment, just being like, oh, okay, resentment is like this. I don't have to do forgiveness every time I'm angry. Sometimes just anger feels like this. Sometimes training. Uh, I'm not going to stay in this resentment, forgiveness, loving kindness. Sometimes just open awareness, non-interfering. Oh, look at all of that self-centered fear. Look at all of that loneliness, whatever is happening in the mind. Worry. Ah, oh, worry again. Big surprise. <laughs> Mind's always worried about something. So those kind of stages, ignoring, training, observing with the mind that's it. when i'm in a general way that's how i think about it yeah and it's a real trap for meditators to get stuck in the ignoring phase common because it's the most pleasant 
part of meditation is ignoring the mind. So it's a lot of meditators report to getting stuck in concentration-based meditations, <clears throat> which is one of the things that separates Buddhist meditation from a lot of other forms of meditation where we are actually working with the mind states, turning towards them, investigating them, analyzing them, where a lot of meditations are just about replacing, replacing, replacing all of those mantra kind of TM practices where it's just like replace the thoughts, don't, you know, uh, which feels great. Or even this, the breath, if your practice is always bringing your attention back to the breath, always ignoring your mind, you're never going to develop the wisdom of the impersonal nature of thought and the ability to meet your mind with compassion and non-identification. Some thoughts about it. Yeah, hope that's helpful. Anything else? I, I, there's the hand at home. Christine, go ahead. You can unmute yourself. Yeah, I just, I really want to thank you for that puppy analogy, because as I was doing the meditation and I'm seeing my mind grab onto thoughts and cling to them, well, that's what a puppy does. It takes things and grabs them, and it just helped me be so much more kind, compassionate, and almost humorous toward it. Um, so I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. You're welcome. I didn't come up with it. Um, I've heard it somewhere. Uh, it might have been from my father or some one of my other early meditation teachers. But I, I like it also, this image of um, hopefully you're the kind of person that would be kind while you were training a puppy and not get too frustrated and not, you know, start, uh, you know, traumatizing your puppy for pissing in the corner, but just gently saying that come back over here, you know, go out through the doggy door, come back to the newspaper or whatever it is in a gentle way, rather than throwing it across the room, like we often do with ourselves, the, the way that we often treat ourselves in this, like you're fucking come back to the breath loser <laughs> fucking meditating stop thinking idiot rather than a gentle it's a you know yeah the mind's thinking again come back come back let go be a good puppy parent to your to your mind declan go ahead and then i'll get into my topic i had a question um i've been doing about seven minutes of loving kindness meditation in the morning and then seven minutes kind of 11th step thinking of the higher power but what's a buddhist meditation routine and what's not like is there like uh any thoughts on that like am i shooting for a minute number i'm doing the loving kindness part which seems buddhist and i just get a little lost sometimes with the choices um i don't think i have an answer to that uh it is whatever you want it to be whatever you say it is i don't have a kind of prescription of you have to meditate for this long to be a good buddhist um i, I mean my own opinion is you should maybe try to sit for more like 20 minutes and um at a minimum you know even if you're brand new i think kind of doing 20 minute meditations is a baseline is my own opinion but if you're doing 14 minutes, seven minutes of this and seven minutes of that, still pretty good, you know, especially if you're fairly new to it, 14 minutes is pretty good, better than nothing. Um, but my own opinion is try to try to start with like 20 minutes, try to move it up to 30. And then if you're quite serious about really getting the benefits of what I'm going to talk about, you know, long-term benefits, 
uh, start trying to sit for more like 45 minutes uh, a day. You know, kind of that's a solid daily practice, 45 minutes sit, um, 30 minutes, 20, 30 minutes seems kind of like half-assed practice, but half-assed is good. I don't want to completely dismiss half-assed, but if you want to, it depends, you know, a serious feels like a, maybe, I don't know, hierarchical or something, but my suggestion is shoot for a 45 minute practice. Um, but in the beginning, wherever you're at, and for sure, five or 10 minutes, 14 minutes, better than nothing, you'll, you will get benefits. Um, and we can work our way. I think, you know, I came into meditation to a meditation group that I would go to every week, like, like this. Uh, and it was a 45 minute sit, 45 minutes, silent, medit no instructions, just go and sit for 45 minutes. So I was just sort of, and I was a teenager and I was fresh off a of crack and right out of jail. And, <laughs> and I just went and that was what was, what was happening. So I just went and I sat there for 45 minutes. And I kept going back week after week and I sat for 45 minutes and I sat for four because that was what the teacher was doing. And there wasn't this sort of like, hey, you can do these 10 minute meditations on the app. It was you sit for 45 minutes and you deal with it. <laughs> and so I was conditioned that uh, in my own kind of like it was difficult. But I was also conditioned like, oh, you can do this. Yeah, you can sit here and you can be uncomfortable and it's difficult and you can do it. Um, and so I don't know, I feel grateful that I was sort of thrown in on that level. I mean, I even, you know, this weekly group, I usually only do about a 30 minute feeling like yeah, if you're new, you can do 30 minutes. And if you're, you know, been meditating for a long time, 30 minutes, still pretty good kind of uh, balance rather than 45. But, you know, Declan, your practice is, is Buddhist. If you um, want it to be Buddhist, you know, kind of mixing the, theistic 12-step practice in there um that's you know that's good that's good for your recovery that's your choice your thing um doing the meta you, you get to mix and you know we're american we get to mix and match as much as we want the fucking melting pot uh and uh don't have to worry too much about being a good buddhist uh, nothing worse than a good buddhist i think i gave a talk not that long ago about how annoying good Buddhists are. <laughs> Hope that's helpful. Now I want to talk about being a good Buddhist. Um, I want to talk about perseverance and just some reflections on the gradual path of transformation that Buddhism is. Maybe starting with uh, reflecting on Siddhartha's, Siddhartha Gautama, who we call the Buddha, um, his seven-year practice. He, he, he was a uh, full-time intensive practice for seven years is what his, the kind of tradition, the, some of its mythology probably, but uh, he was a real person. And, and the reports are he meditated, you know, 24-7, full-time, homeless, renunciate uh, for seven years, and that that was what led to the insights that, that were transformative for him. 
one time when the Buddha was asked how long it takes, I, I talked about earlier about the Buddha's answer to, or the um, Dalai Lama's answer to how long it takes. And he said, check in on your progress once every decade. In the suttas, there's a place where the Buddha is asked, how long does enlightenment take? And his first answer was uh, something like, I forget what it says, but it's something like uninterrupted mindfulness for seven years. And it's that consistent, it's the uninterrupted, the consistent, if you could be mindful every moment for seven years, you will become liberated. And then he actually um, tracks it back in the sutta. He says, well, seven years, that's a long time to not get lost in, in just, you know, kind of identification and not non-mindfulness. He said, actually, I think if you could do it for seven months, you could become liberated in seven months. And then he brings it down. I think there might be an intermediate step where it says 70 days. It's this list of sevens, seven years, seven months, 70 days. And then he goes all the way down to actually, if you could maintain mindfulness, full presence, non-judgmental kind awareness for seven days, straight, right? Uninterrupted mindfulness for seven. He said, you could become a Buddha. You could become uh, fully liberated in a week, which is one of the reasons why we have these week-long meditation retreats. And there's become this tradition of like, well, you better do it for at least a week because that was the lowest bar the Buddha ever set. <laughs> was a week of uninterrupted mindfulness. So we go on these 10 day or one week meditation retreats to try to maintain mindfulness. But all of you who've been on retreat know it's fucking impossible. You go on retreat and you're mindful some of the time, but you're also off to the races in your fantasies and fears. And I totally identified with it and not mindful at all half of the time on retreat or three quarters of the time, or maybe 90% of the time, but you get that 10% of total presence or 50% or whatever it is in your, your experience. There's lots of stories in, um, I guess one of the traditional contexts for this and, and that I'm reflecting on is that in the Eightfold Path, effort, I'm talking about perseverance, but effort is the sixth of the eight factors so it's not like just you know understand reality have good intentions right speech right action right livelihood be mindful and concentrated and you'll be liberated it's that all of these factors take effort mindfulness as we see in meditation takes so much effort to find that balanced effort of how much, how hard do I try to be present with the breath, with the mind states, with the emotions. And have you had that experience in meditation where you're kind of like gritting your teeth and you're getting a little tense about, you know, not being very kind to the puppy dog, kind of trying a little too hard, kind of meditating like, a, oh, and maybe it doesn't outwardly look so tense, but inwardly you feel frustrated and, and uptight about what's happening rather than a balanced internal acceptance of this is a process of learning to be present and then gone and then present and then gone and keep returning, whether we're returning to the breath or the mind states or the emotions or the sense doors. 
So effort is central. Um, Buddhism offers us a path, offers us a map to that path. The Eightfold Path is a, a map. Here's the uh, directions, here's the instructions, starting with the acknowledgement of suffering, the acknowledgement that like suffering is a given, it's unavoidable for the unenlightened beings. We're gonna get attached, we're gonna get aversive, we're gonna be self-centered. Acknowledging the cause, the repetitive craving. And it's like, you get that, right? You read your first Buddhist book, however long ago, you heard the Dharma talk and you're like, oh yeah, this makes sense. I suffer, I have craving, I have aversion. I'm self-centered. I make This makes sense to me. And then here's the path, eightfold path. And we get to that sixth factor, effort. Long-term, sustainable perseverance. Now, I don't know about this seven years, um, you know, Buddhism, even in the Theravadan, but I think all traditions, you know, create this like, yeah, the Buddha seven years, but also he'd been doing this for lifetimes. And then there's all of these tales, these stories about the past lifetimes of the Buddha before he was born as Siddhartha, um, because it's like, it wasn't just seven years of meditation, it was seven years and hundreds of previous wise births that led to that incarnation that led him to become awakened. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know how much truth there is to that. Maybe I, I kind of land in the agnostic stuff about rebirth and these previous lives. And maybe I'm not sure. I like the Dalai Lama's suggestion and that response of, uh, this is a long-term, gradual process of awakening. Whether you're practicing our Vipassana technique and traditional Theravadan Buddhism, or you know, he's talking about even in the Mahayana and the, the Mahayana and Vajrayana, where he's coming from. You know, they they they're the Buddhist tradition that said actually we know a faster way to liberation. Vajrayana is the kind of Tibetan. Um, you know, kind of, they say, this is the best way. It's the highest way. It's the fastest way, the best. But he, I love that he's saying, meditate every day, practice, be ethical, be kind, study, engage in the Dharma, live the Dharma, live the precepts, do your meditation practice and see how gradually over the years, you will develop compassion. You will develop wisdom. See how once every decade or so check in, am I kinder now than I was 10 years ago, now that I've been meditating regularly for 10 years? Am I less attached? Am I more generous? And, you know, and, and some of this, we can kind of look at our practice depending on, you know, where you're at, but at some point, you know, kind of looking at our practice and then we can see where the weak spots are. Because you might look at your practice after a decade and say, I'm a lot more compassionate, but I'm not very generous. I need to put some effort on generosity. Or you might say, I'm very generous. I have no boundaries at all. <laughs> too generous, generous to a fault. But I don't have a lot of uh, patience or I don't have a lot of um, 
kindness. One of the things that I like to do for myself and suggest is to occasionally look at the Eightfold Path as a kind of reflection on uh, how am I doing with my speech, right speech? Am I paying attention to uh, what I am intentionally saying and doing right action? Am I being careful with the precepts, the five precepts, not killing, not lying, not stealing, not engaging in sexual misconduct, not using intoxicants? Looking at this map that the Buddha has given us and as a, a check-in, am I persevering? Where's, oh, I'm meditating every day, but I'm lying some, or I'm telling the truth all of the time. Not that anybody does, but trying to all of the time. And, but I'm, my meditation practice kind of half-assed. Or I'm reading a lot. I'm studying the Dharma. I'm listening. I've been listening to podcasts every day. I'm really downloading the Dharma, but I'm not going on retreat. You know, looking at like what's out of balance, where, you know, where does needing of effort. The um, Eightfold Path is traditionally um, symbolized by a wheel with eight spokes and the freedom that we're looking for dukkha the first noble truth has some sort of root in a term of being a wheel that is um out of true that is there's something wrong with the hub you know like a bicycle wheel or car wheel or uh, and there's something where it's off balance and therefore you're going through life with the fucking wobbles the suffering but that this eightfold path, if our speech and our action and our understanding and our intentions and our effort and our mindfulness and our concentration, if everything becomes balanced, then actually you roll through life with compassion for the pain that you encounter. You roll through life in a smooth way that, um, you know, the joys come and go, the sorrows come and go, the, uh, able to navigate to roll through the potholes and the times where it's like smooth cruising and enjoy it not fuck it up and the parts where it's really rough and tolerate it and meet it with wisdom without making it worse and so part of effort and the long-term perseverance that i'm thinking about is us always you know coming back to looking at where am i out of balance what what needs more effort in a, you know, in a relaxed and sustainable way. There's a danger in the Western meditative, especially with the secularization and the removal of meditation from the rest of Buddhism. There's a lot of people, there might even be more people in America meditating than there are in Asia in traditional Buddhist countries. I don't know if you know this, but only like 10% of Buddhists actually meditate. And there might be actually more people in America meditating, but completely devoid. I don't know if that's true at all. I'm just making shit up, but it's possible because we have millions and millions of people meditating in this secular mindfulness and on the apps and uh, people are meditating. 
divorced from understanding reality or the rest of the eightfold path, divorced from uh, ethics, you know, totally separate from kindness and compassion, mindfulness as a stress reduction, mindfulness as a psychological trauma resolution. Now, hopefully all of the paths lead to wisdom. Hopefully even uh, secular mindfulness practices will help people become sensitive enough to start being kind and loving and compassionate and forgiving. I'm, I'm hopeful of that. But I feel so fortunate. I feel like we're so fortunate to have the whole Dharma, the, eight, the whole instruction and not just mindfulness, also ethics, also compassion, also forgiveness in a way that if you just have a narrow uh, meditation practice without the, the uh, container of the Dharma, the teachings. The Buddha said, and you know, been flying this flag for a long time. The Buddha said, this path to awakening, to freedom from suffering leads against the stream against greed, against hatred, against delusion. And in the beginning of his awakening, he was a bit uh, hesitant to teach. He's like, in this world where people are so attached, so you know, glued to their uh, views and their opinions and their beliefs and their craving for pleasure and their aversion to pain, who's gonna take this path that is asking us to sit with our pain rather than avoid it? Who's going to take this path that is asking us to practice non-attachment rather than collecting blissful experiences? But I like this image of against the stream and um, of actually thinking about the effort that it takes to swim against a current. I mean, we, you know, here in California, if you're out in the ocean and you get sucked out by a current or a riptide or if you're actually in a river and you're going against a, a stream going against a, a flowing body of water you probably know but i'll remind you um, that what you don't do is uh swim as hard as you can directly against the current because you'll get exhausted and you'll just you won't you won't, won't be sustainable and that what the suggestion is when going against a current, a tide, a stream, is to go diagonal, to kind of go with it, go across. And I like this image um, for sustainable effort. Like if you were trying to, you're stuck downstream and you can't walk, but you have to swim upstream, that you might swim diagonally to the shore and rest, and then swim diagonally to the other shore and rest, and swim and just make a little bit of progress each time rather than I'm gonna get in the middle and swim as hard as I can and pretty soon I'm floating downstream again or I'm being dragged out to sea because I was trying to fight it and I just am not strong enough to fight it. So thinking of the sustainable effort, which is going not directly against, but making some progress slowly as we diagonally cut across the 
energies of greed and hatred and delusion. One of my favorite um, stories in Tibetan Buddhism is a character who's kind of a saint in, in the Tibetan Buddhist schools um, called Nargajuna. I don't know if you're familiar with Nargajuna. And one of the reasons I like him is because he was um, before he became a saint and he's like one of the like highest compassion, you know, kind of examples of compassion. And so first you think you see his picture and he's this meditating monk and he lived in a cave and he's this meditating monk and he's the most compassionate. He's the... But his backstory is, is that he was a mass murderer before he became a Buddhist monk. He had gotten into dark magic and had cast some spells and killed a whole bunch of people and then saw, oof, fucked up not the source of revenge is not the source of happiness and he became a, a monk and he went and lived in a cave and became this great compassionate loving force that inspired all of these people and uh, there's a story at one point where somebody asks him how did you become so compassionate just living in this cave and how did you you know become this you know bodhisattva of compassion and he lifted up his monk's robes and showed him the calluses on his ass. And I just love that image that, you know, I, I got the, he mooned him. And, you know, with the meaning, obviously, that it was, I, I sat here and I sat in my pain and I sat with the regret for the harm that I'd caused and I slowly slowly over the years so long that it created calluses on my ass I sat with my pain and I turned towards it with mercy and with compassion and eventually it bore you know the the gradual fruit was coming to a place of wisdom and that it took years it took decades to get to a place of compassion. There's no quick fix. Maybe I'll stop there and see if there's any questions, comments, anything before we end tonight. monasticism yeah. let me paraphrase it for the people at home i don't know if everybody could hear um 
Remage is saying, you know, been listening to the monks a lot and uh, that it can kind of, you know, from the, our Theravadan tradition, that it can in, in him kind of land uh, about like, well, if we have the right view um, and you've been listening to the monks a lot, it can kind of feel like, well, why wouldn't we become monastics if we really wanted to be free from suffering? And there can be a kind of sense of like this householder life that we're choosing is kind of a lower path or a second, uh, and sometimes the monks can sort of make it sound like, yeah, liberation's not really possible for the householders, but for the monks, maybe. <laughs> um, and I know what you're saying, uh, and I've had similar feelings. And uh, at one point, I kind of, I didn't even really want to listen to the monks anymore because it did, it started to set up that feeling of like the monks are the real Buddhists and the householders are not. Um, now, if you ask Ajahn Amaro or Sumedho or any of those high teachers, they will say for sure the Buddha taught householders can get enlightened. It's part of the teaching. The thing is, is that often they're teaching to other monks, and so they're supporting the teachings that we're listening to, the books, all of that. They're supporting people in celibacy and in monasticism and encouraging them that this is the best choice you've made, because that's the choice that they've made. Now, the Buddha, although he was celibate and a monastic, and um, he said householders can do it. It's possible. Kind of saying it's harder as a householder than it is at a, as a monk probably be easier to break your attachment to pleasure if you never have sex again. Because as long as you're having sex, the attachment to the sex is going to create some suffering for you, most likely. And so you're, you know, you've heard me talk about this a bunch of times, probably trying to be non-attached in the midst of sexuality. Theoretically possible. <laughs> <laughs> practically very difficult to be non-attached to our relationships, to our partners, to our, um, so probably easier if you're a monk, but not impossible as a householder. In the Buddha's time, there was lots of householders that were getting liberated. It is part of the core teaching that we can have liberation as a householder, as a non-monastic. When you listen to the monks too much, it can kind of sound like that's the real path and this isn't. There's a lot of reasons. I came somewhat close to becoming a monk. I really contemplated it in my early life. And um, I felt for me that there was um, healing that could only take place in relationship, intimate, sexual. I felt that becoming a parent was going to be an important part of my spiritual practice and my awakening in this lifetime. Um, I didn't want to forsake that and become a, a celibate monk. I wanted to engage in the world in a way that I could be of service and that I could also, my own healing, I felt was going to come partially in, in intimate relationships. Um, I was a little bit concerned about avoiding that through celibacy rather than doing some healing that needed to take place in I've always enjoyed having both householder and monastic teachers so that I get both sides. So that I get inspired by people who are living it in the world. 
And sometimes, you know, I don't, I, I'll talk to my monastic teachers about everything, but I, you know, when it comes to sex and money and parenting and stuff like that, that they've never experienced or not haven't experienced in decades anyways, you know, my, my teacher has been celibate for 50 years. What do you know about sex? Well, I had sex 50 years ago. And of course, you know, it's just the human condition. So they actually know a lot about sex because it's just part of the human condition, even though they're not engaging in it. Jeff, did you want to make a comment before we end or question? You know what? I wanted to know if you knew something about this prediction. Um, I don't know if this is an um, authentic core teaching of Buddha or maybe later like Abhidhamma stuff. But was there a prediction about how the Dharma would end? And I think it was broken into like three parts. And apparently we're in like this third trimester of the how the Dharma would be diminished. But the prediction was that the prediction looks like secular, uh, secular mindfulness, so that it would that the Dharma would be diminished and watered down so much to the point where no one would ever recognize it again, it would become something else. It becomes so degraded that they're practicing it at Google. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or in the military. People are selling it on applications. Something like that. Do you know what I think that's what he said. I think he said when the apps come in, it's over. <laughs> as soon as people are meditating on apps. Yeah, he yeah, he mentioned live streaming he, on he, YouTube, that shit's done. He he, he he specifically mentioned Elon Musk. <laughs> I don't actually know. Um, I know you're I know I'm familiar that there is some suttas that say something like that. I've sometimes you've heard me talk sometimes Jeff say um, one of the things that he was wrong about was that he said, you know, there was something about the women and the Sangha and the social structure th that uh, that Buddhism would would end within, I think it was 500 years. It was 500 years and Ananda like talked him out of it, right? Yeah, well, and he was wrong. Here we are 2,600 years ago, later, still practicing and still talking about it. Um, so who knows if those predictions are even the words of the Buddha. The problem with Buddhism, I don't know if everybody knows this, Jeff knows this. Most of you probably know this. The problem with Buddhism is that we don't really know what the Buddha taught because it wasn't written down for 200 years. It was recorded in chants. And the other problem with Buddhism is that it's a world religion. And you know what we do for world religions? We fucking exaggerate. We add a whole bunch of you know, the power structure. The patriarchy gets in there and says, you know, this is what this is what he meant. This is what he said. And it just. It's unreliable. It's why we have to come back and I'll end with this to reflecting on these teachings, these practices and trusting yourself more than scripture trusting your own direct experience. Is this leading to the freedom from, to freedom from suffering? Is this leading to compassion? Is this leading to happiness in my life long-term over the decades? Not, is it a quick fix, but is, am I gradually becoming wiser and less confused and more loving and kind? And you trust that, the direct experience rather than the fucking religion. I'll end with that, fuck Buddhism. <laughs> Put that on Instagram, Sebastian. <laughs> At one point, I wanted to make a t shirt. There was years ago, I saw they were making fuck yoga t shirts, like the yogis. 
was like, fuck yoga. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was a bunch of yoga people. And I was like, yeah, it's like, let's make a fuck Buddhism t-shirt. But my mom wouldn't let me. <laughs> Her mom admit it. She said she, she vetoed it. <laughs> Class is done by donation. We are dependent on your generosity. Um, to support against the stream. There's no dues, no fees, no uh, costs to attend. Everybody's welcome. And the way that this works and has worked in Buddhism for thousands of years is voluntary generosity. And so you get to give as much or as little as you'd like. Suggested donation is around $25 for a drop-in class. If you can afford that, great, give, give us 25 bucks. Um, if you want to give more, please give more than 25 bucks. If you don't have 25 bucks and you want to drop, you know, 10, whatever's affordable to you, drop what's affordable to you. Uh, please consider becoming a monthly supporter of Against the Stream. So rather than this sort of like making donations when you come, just saying, I want to give $50 a month or $100 a month to support the organization, the mission of uh, making this available to everyone free, free of charge. Couple of announcements. There are um, there's a retreat, a seven day retreat. It's not August yet. Tomorrow's August, but in I want to say next month in September. Um, I think it's September eighth through fifteenth. I have a seven day silent meditation retreat up in um, Running Springs, which is just up the mountains from here, up by Lake Arrowhead, Big Bear area. Uh, it's open for registration. There's a link on the Against the Stream site. We're actually registering people through Refuge Recovery, but everyone's welcome. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about recovery stuff there, but mostly it's just a silent retreat. We'll be sitting and walking. So even if you're not in recovery and you want to come, you can come. All are welcome. Um, I think that's the only. What else do I got? Oh yeah, we've got these posters um, on the desk over there that uh, my friend Mike Giant made for us that are a fundraiser. They're 50 bucks, they're a fundraiser for the center. So if you wanna buy a poster, there's green and blue. Maybe at some point I'll get some to my mom to be able to send them out for people at home that wanna, right now they're just in person in, in Los Angeles. Um, that's all for tonight. I'll, I'm around for the rest of the month, I believe, and I'll see you guys next week. May any goodness that comes from our practice be gathered and shared with all beings in existence. May each one of us persevere to find as much freedom as possible in this lifetime. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.